to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. 欢迎来到费正清中国研究中心的哈佛论中国播客。The Fairbank Center is a world-leading center on China at Harvard University. Today's guest on the Harvard on China podcast is David Barbosa, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times and 2016 Neiman Visiting Fellow at Harvard's Neiman Foundation for Journalism. After cutting his teeth in student journalism at Boston University. David first joined the Times as a business reporter, notably working on the team that covered the Enron scandal. In 2004, he became the Times Shanghai correspondent, where he began researching a story that would fundamentally change the relationship between Western journalists and the Chinese government. The story involved the former Prime Minister of China, Wen Jiabao, and his billions of hidden assets in stocks, companies, and through family and close friends. In 2013, David Barbosa's detailed reporting on this story received the Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting, quote, for his striking exposure of corruption at high levels of the Chinese government and well-documented work published in the face of heavy pressure from the Chinese officials. This report resulted in the blocking of the New York Times websites in China and the barring of new visas to foreign journalists in China for several years. I'm James Evans at the Harvard on China podcast. And I spoke with David Barbosa about how he became interested in journalism, his move to China, and breaking his Pulitzer Prize-winning report, and what advice he has for journalists in the face of increasing government pressure. This interview is also the inaugural conversation in the Fairbank Center's Communicating China project, where we examine how China is communicated in public discourse by academics, journalists, and officials, and how that shapes conversations about China's position in the world. David Barbosa.、Uh... Correspondent, a business correspondent with the New York Times、uh, for more than fifteen years. I, my current connection with Harvard is I'm a Neiman Fellow for the next three months、uh, here, working on a project. In the the lecture we just heard, you spoke about starting this interest in journalism at BU. Maybe you could tell us about your your story about cold calling Dean Rusk, for right, example. Right, right. Well, it's kind of. Strange thing for me to do, but like I said in the in the lecture, I I don't know why I came up with this idea, or、um, but it's it's、uh, it's just what it is. Is in in college I would work on these class papers, and I thought, well, I'm interested in history, and I'm interested in journalism and investigative journalism. Why not start doing that for my college papers and for my college student student newspaper? And so for my class papers, I decided I would. If I'm writing about the Vietnam War or China or World War II or Russia, I should call some of the historical figures, and maybe they would answer my calls. And to my surprise, they did. And so I ended up calling、uh, Dean Rusk, who was, I think, then teaching at the University of Georgia Law School. And I said I wanted to interview him about、uh, the Vietnam War, and he agreed. And so we talked about the Vietnam War, and I called. Walt Rostow, who had also worked in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, and John Hersey, the famous writer and New Yorker writer and an Asia specialist, I called and interviewed him and so many people. I just、uh, Harrison Salisbury, who was one of my heroes in college, who I saw lecture at Harvard when I was at Boston University. So、um, I ended up trying to become、uh, like a historian while I was a student and.、Uh, Wrote papers with the footnotes listing the telephone interviews I had done,、um, so that was to me a lot of fun. You told us that in 2004, you had this opportunity to go to Shanghai as a correspondent. Right.、Um, what was sort of the back process? What, what? How did you end up being sent to Shanghai? So I was、um, 
I was a staff reporter. I began as a staff reporter at the Times in 1997. Started out in New York covering Wall Street and the stock market. And then I went to the Chicago Bureau as a business correspondent. Spent five years there um, covering business, but also I spent a year covering Enron, special special project on Enron. And while I was in, I was living in Houston as the Chicago business correspondent. I lived for a year in Houston in a hotel, and uh, during that time, my colleague Jim Yardley, who was the Houston bureau chief, was offered the Shanghai bureau chief job. And then when he decided he wanted to be in Beijing, he uh, he suggested that I look at the Shanghai job because it's a more of a business job. So Jim Yardley went to Beijing to become not the bureau chief but one of the correspondents. And I inquired about the Shanghai job, remembering my interest in China uh, back in college.、Um, and so the business desk said, "Why don't you go and take a look at Shanghai?"、Um, and so on Christmas Day in 2002, I flew to Shanghai and immediately fell in love with the city and the country, and said, "I really, I'm not just asking the New York Times. I'm saying, like, I really have to go to China." And if I can't, I think I'm going to take leave of the New York Times and learn Chinese and spend some time in China. So luckily, they they agreed to send me as a business correspondent. And I ended up going in 2004,、um, and、uh, yeah, spent six, 12 years in China. It's very difficult to summarize, but what changes do you think you've seen in those 12 years? Or what was your initial impression of Shanghai, and how did it change?、Um, Physically, certainly Shanghai changed a lot, but probably, in the larger scope of things, the bigger changes to Shanghai probably came just before I got there in the in the nineties.、Um, so it did get bigger and better and more sophisticated and more better airports and highways and infrastructure and buildings. But it was pretty built up when I got there. But I guess the thing that even today. Is remarkable to me, and certainly I was there in a time of change. Is to think about all of the building that I saw going on all over the country, and it's one thing to see that in a few areas of a few cities, but if you travel to thirty provinces, as I believe I've traveled to about thirty of the provinces, it is phenomenal to see that many new bridges and roads and residential office towers, everything. So. It's hard for me to think about China without thinking about everything is under construction, everything is new. There's dust everywhere, and the entire country is being built almost from scratch. And so I think I was just there. Probably it was like that also in the mid to late '90s. But I was probably there at the peak. If you look at the amount of money and the amount of cement, I, I heard just recently that there was more cement poured in. China in the last two years than in the rest of the world combined or something, but it is just a phenomenal pace of change at the time I was there,、uh, physically. So I think in other ways maybe China changed much slower, in you know obviously in social and cultural ways and how the government functions and and the media and all those things they didn't change as quickly, but、um, physically and as far as the internet those were two. Really, major changes that you you know really noticed、um, what the internet the the internet means to China and also what the building boom has meant to China and I think that's going to be for a long time to come. So most visitors with China would say to me, "Wow, I just visited you know they're they're building the Beijing airport and the 
there's like 30,000 people living in the Beijing airport, you know, with it under construction or, or the Olympics. Or I went to Tianjin and they're building whole new towns. And so you can't get around that much investment in infrastructure. One of the sort of key little snippets that you brought out during your talk was your love of visiting factories mm -hmm. and visiting the people in these factories. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about why is it factories in particular that are so enthralling to you? Well, I think if you really want to see something in China, you can think about there's, um, there's certainly the big cities, but are those, they're all becoming kind of like Western cities, right? They all kind of look alike. Um, and so China, the landscape, uh, unless you're in the far West, it's not spectacularly beautiful. It's like crowded and cramped and everyone is building. And so it's not, uh, when people visit China, it's not like they say, wow, I want to see cities. And so what can you see in China? Um, so I think one of the most exciting things you can see is a lot of people ask, well, how is how are things made? Um, not just in China, but anywhere in the world. So if I went to any country, I would want to see what their factories are like. But in China, you get to see, unlike in the U.S., you might have the most modern facilities um, where maybe even there aren't that many workers. So for me to go to a factory and to see the scale of, you know, a hundred thousand workers at one site or 50,000 workers at one site with dormitories and factory lines as far as the eye can see, all churning out t-shirts or sweaters or, or you know, um, toys. That is phenomenal to see, wow, this is how much stuff is being made. This is how they make it. To actually see the process of what a person has to go through. So for instance, I remember going to the Nike factory in Guangdong province and seeing the number of steps just to make one pair of sneakers. Um, and there's a person that just does one strip of glue um, on this one patch. And there's, there's so many different parts. So to see it from raw material comes in, to the final product and to see that package and to see how fast the line could go, how many people can work it, and how difficult those jobs are, not only gave me an appreciation for how things are made, but for how hard these people are working to give you a product that costs so little. So your just whole perception of what it is. And also maybe you go to a factory and say, you know what, I've seen what goes into making this product and I never want to buy it again. Or it's just there's too many and it's a, it's a wasteful product. So you get so much. Um, so I felt so much kind of excitement, emotion, interest in seeing how the factory functions and also the ingenuity of the factory lines and how they would create new things to save one second or to, to have one movement. Um, so they would create little devices or change the, the structure of the line so that they could get five more products out per hour. Um, so that is also a phenomenal thing. Um, so the whole part of it, so to meet the migrant workers and ask them where they come from, you know, how long have they worked here? What do they earn? What is life like in the dormitory? What do they do on their weekend? To understand the workers and then to understand what the company has built to, you know, to, to create this factory and what pressure there is on the factory to produce 
enough product on time. So there's quotas in some, some of the factories. A lot of the factories have this big, you know, quota number that's above showing them whether they're on quota or not or how many they produced. And so there's, with the factory life, there are so many interesting aspects of it um, that I could explore. So that's why for me it was one of my favorite things because I could think about the economics, I could think about the raw material, I could think about the business strategy, I could think about how does this stuff get to market. So many things come through the factory and also it's one of the things powering China and that's changed China is the idea that all of these Western or foreign companies from around the world would contract with a Chinese company and they'd set up a factory, get some government subsidies, bring in millions of people from the countryside, ask them to live for two or three years in a dormitory and to produce goods six or seven days a week. Um, and many of them would work 10, 12, 15 hours a day. So to see that process that is really affecting everyone in every part of the world, to me, is is amazing. I, I think there, there's probably not many things I would rather, I mean, I'd love to see like Peking Opera or lots of cultural events in China, but um, seeing the factory and going to a different type of factory is to me so exciting. So for a lot of people, you're probably best known as the guy who wrote the story about Wen Jiabao mm -hmm. um, and sort of broke the, the story about his secret fortunes and wealth and the top tiers of the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. Talk us through how that investigation started. You said it started in 2011. Mm -hmm. What were the origins of that story? The origins actually trace back to 2010 um, when I talked about doing a final project because I figured uh, every year after 2010 I thought was my final year. So when the editor came through ahead of just before the World Expo, I talked to um, Jill Abramson, who's now at Harvard teaching, I talked to her about this series I wanted to do on on how the government manages businesses or how you do business in China, what's the government's role. So we thought of this, you know, this this idea of state capitalism, how does it work for private entrepreneurs, how do they deal with the state, how do state-owned companies work, how does the state manage the economy, and also this idea that I had thought about for many years about how do these children or relatives of state leaders um, get involved in business. Why do I hear so much about their importance as, uh, as uh, leaders in private equity or other industries? So what is their role and what does it mean to be a princeling? And so that was going to be the final story of this series. I knew it was sensitive. I didn't know that I could get very far. There were a few very good stories about princelings in the years before I got to China, but in the six or eight years after that, I didn't see much. And so I thought, how do I explore this in a new way? And so we came up with this idea to do um, a final story on princelings and kind of do a survey where we would look at where are the children of senior leaders and what businesses are they in? And, you know, did they get special contracts with state-owned companies? Or, you know, to find out something, I didn't really know what. And so I started that the idea was 2010. I did this series in 2011 and it was running behind schedule. And I was finally, I had to drop another investigation and work on this final princeling piece so that we would be done by December of 2011. And I'm 
think I began it in September of 2011. And uh, pretty soon after beginning, I started to realize that doing the whole Politburo or the whole Politburo Standing Committee and all their relatives in a big chart was going to be interesting, but not very deep. And so at some point late in 2011, I decided why don't I focus on one or two leaders and their families. And so I narrowed it down to maybe two or three and said, whatever one I find the most information. And it was pretty quickly clear that uh, the information that was available about the prime minister was far more than anyone else, even though I'd heard about all the other families. But there was, it was almost too easy because what was out there, just uh, the rumors, were really clear. Um, and I had a whole file of, of things about Wen Jiabao's family. So I said, oh, here's the one with most of the clues. Let's just see how this goes. And then if it goes well, we'll stick with him. If not, we'll go to someone else. And so, you know, I didn't choose him necessarily. It just sort of happened is that people had met him and talked to me. Had had a, I could read it online. I could read it on Wikipedia. And so I collected those rumors and started my research. And as I mentioned in the lecture, it was pretty clear after I got the... I went uh, to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange website or to the Ping'an website and got the prospectus when Ping'an went public in 2004 and read through that IPO prospectus and I found like all these interesting Chinese companies that I'd never heard of holding lots of shares and I thought, well, if, if the family's going to be in there, they may be in these no-name companies. And so I started looking through those companies and more and more clues came out and uh, sort of I was off to the races. Ping, Ping An is a big insurance company mm -hmm. and you, you said it was listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what did you find out about Ping An in particular? So, you know, in the investigation, um, obviously you want to start with what's easiest at the beginning, so where you can get your first momentum. And so of all the rumors about the prime minister's family, the one that stood out the most was the rumor that they were somehow involved in ping on insurance, which at that time may have been a $50 billion. I mean, at the time I'm looking at it, might've been a $50 billion company. So it's publicly listed, it's listed in Hong Kong. Hong Kong Stock Exchange requires that all annual reports and prospectuses be in English. And so I could do a quick search overnight by just going on the website and looking through the prospectus. And so um, that was my first big find to find out that um, once once I found that there were these Chinese companies, I could then type it into Google or Baidu and turn up some clues and some names who are the owners, go to the owner's website. And then I realized that there's also this State Administration of Industry and Commerce agency that keeps private corporation records that I could request through a law firm or consulting firm. And so I'm just sort of searching around for clues. And so I request these different companies that own Ping'an shares and start to put together a chart um, that also finds that some of the companies that were rumored to be related to the wife of the prime minister had ties to the companies that were owners of Ping'an shares. And then I found that companies that were rumored to be related to the son of the prime minister also had ties to Ping'an 
or to the diamond companies. And what I found is common shareholders on all three, um, or one company lends money to another company, or um, lots of different transactions or relationships between the rumored companies and Ping On. And so that gave me my first hint that I was really onto something, that there had to be some truth because could it be possible that all these rumors linked up to the family companies? And so I started to look up diamond companies, ping on insurance companies, because diamonds was related to the wife of the prime minister and the private equity firm. And like I said, other companies that the private equity firm invested in. So the son of the prime minister's private equity firm invests in a company. And I noticed that that company they invested in maybe have a tie to one of the other companies. So I'm just looking at the beginning at relationships um, and things that are they a coincidence or a clue that something is really going on here. And so I'm trying to get an understanding to, I don't think I can solve the problem at the beginning, but just try to see if there are connections that lead me to quick conclusions or at least temporary conclusions, which is, I think this is highly likely that the prime minister's family is involved because I see his brother is involved in the company that ties to Ping On or that ties to the diamond industry. And, uh, and then I see uh, the, the, the son of the prime minister's best friend from college, who's also in the private equity firm with him, is also tied into these companies. So at the beginning, I'm just looking, build up relationships, build up the initial evidence. Um, and all of that was sort of done by November or December of 2011. I had a pretty good clues that the family was holding shares in Ping On indirectly through lots of other companies as much as a billion dollars by November or December of 2011. But the difficult part was, was ahead, which is I couldn't just go on what it seems like, but I wanted to get every record of every company and I wanted to triangulate in every way what could go wrong or could I be wrong about this. And I wanted to talk to accountants and lawyers and others and I wanted to look at it from another way like Ping On's history. Those first clues were pretty quick. They gave me a pretty good idea. I have a great story, but I want to go page by page and make sure everything is right. And so that took another, almost another year to do the rest. It's great that you managed to convince the New York yeah. Times. Yeah. <laughs> well, I kind of, you know, it was sort of, uh, I was telling them month by month and they were, it was really that they were really good about letting me delay month after month and saying, you know what, this is really important story. It's really dangerous and big story. And I need to be really confident that this is right. And I don't want to go too early. And I think in many cases, maybe other newspapers or maybe other journalists would decide, I have 50 million or I have 100 million, let's just go with it. I knew that I couldn't get everything. And I still, even when I finished after more than a year, didn't get everything. But I wanted to get so much that I felt more than confident because I'm really risking my life and career in publishing this. So if it's if it's wrong, I'm really in trouble. So I wanted to feel, not the New York Times, you know, they have the final decision, but I want to feel like I'm ready to give it to them. To Tell us a little bit about 
the stories behind trying to figure out who some of these individuals are. Mm-hmm. And you said a lot of the individuals were hidden by aliases or it's difficult mm-hmm. to find information on them. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of a challenge did that pose to reporting the story? So I would say that was the biggest challenge because you could get a government record and it could give you 20 names of shareholders. But in many cases, you didn't know any of those people. And they're not even, you know, members of the Wen family. So so you start with a clue and say, okay, so this company is doing a lot of deals with a company I think is controlled by the Wen family. But the names, I don't recognize any of them, and they don't seem to be Wen family members. At least they're not the wife or the son or the daughter um, or the prime minister himself. So how do you figure out who those people are? And that was the process that took a long time of trying to understand what their age is or looking through their resume or what province are they from and saying, why would the family trust this person if they were working? Were they a partner? Were they actually holding the shares for the, per- for the Wen family? And a lot of those questions, I think we figured out, but a lot of them we still even to this day, don't know. But on the major ones, the biggest shareholders, I was able to identify almost all of the major shareholders. Um, But there were lots of smaller ones that I'm still to this day not sure who they were. They could be cousins, they could be best friends, you know, relatives. I mean, you would use, at least I've learned this in going through the process and talking to people, that when you know, leaders, families do this kind of deal, they are going to find not only relatives to do it, to hide their name, but they're going to find good friends and try to find as many names of so-called white gloves, they call them, who are, you know, the stand-ins, but they need to trust these people because they're the legal shareholder. So the good thing about that is it means it should be someone really close to them and if it's a lot of money, they probably want it to be a relative. So in many of the cases, it was brother-in-law, daughter-in-law, father-in-law, cousin, etc. more often than son, daughter, or direct relative. But there were many cases where it was a good friend. And I learned later on about who some of these people were, and it's someone you trust. Um, maybe someone who was a business partner who they've known for a long time. And even some people will tell you that many of the leading entrepreneurs in China don't actually own the companies. They, they are listed as the majority shareholder or the largest shareholder, but they really had been selected by an official to control this company for the official. And I can tell you in um, many years ago, maybe in 2008 or nine, I met a businessman in China, Chinese businessman. And I asked him about a, a major company, and he, he laughed at me and said that this, uh, this entrepreneur didn't actually own the company. It was owned by one of the leading families in China. And I said, how is that possible? And he said, you just don't understand. There's not going to be records, but trust me, I know that person. That person does not own the company. They're holding it for this other leader. And I didn't really believe that. Um, But later on, I started to see that that was highly likely in many of the instances, not all, but in many instances, they could have selected the entrepreneur or the entrepreneur later on after doing well in this business, wanted some 
state support or some licenses or approvals or some so-called protection from the government and so made a deal with a family to give them a certain amount of shares in that company. So, um, and I've now done dozens if not hundreds of companies uh, background searches and I think it's this is a model in China. It's what I found with the Prime Minister's family was not unique to them. It happens on a local level, on a provincial level. Um, it's, it's many other Politburo members have a similar chart uh, behind them. They all work a sort of variation of this, um, how to have stakes in companies secretly. So, um, you know, I was really just scratching the surface on how the game is played, and I think I got a very, very tiny slice of what really happens. Um, doesn't mean every single deal, but uh, it would be pretty hard to have a major company in China where someone, either the state or the relatives of some government official were not in there somewhere. I don't want to be cynical, but I, I think it's highly unlikely. So in 20. 12, Bo Xilai came a cropper in Chongqing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you were saying that the government were going around asking people not to publish reports about investigations <clears throat> into the wealth of leading Chinese officials. Mm -hmm. What was going through your head in 2012 as you were trying to finish off this story, but not try to get yourself banned from China mm -hmm. or your own safety? What, 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 was, what were you thinking at the time? I think, you know, from 2011, even before Borshilai fell and the government started, you know, worrying about Western journalists writing about Borshilai, I was pretty worried um, and, uh, you know, not so sure how I was going to finish this investigation being inside of China and, uh, you know, what risk it might pose to my research assistants, but also my wife and myself personally. And so to do an investigation in secret, um, that's a lot of pressure. Even if you're in the United States, you'll feel when you're carrying around your secret investigation for months and trying to come up with a strategy of how to do it and keep it secret and yet get the things you want, yet not endanger yourself or the people around you, that is really uh, a lot of pressure and it builds over time. And so when the government started to come around, go around, Indirectly, I mean, they never went directly, I think, to foreign journalists and said, do not investigate. Um, they usually went indirectly or got a message to someone who was working for you that they, you know, they didn't want you to do this. Um, and so I got, you know, pretty worried, you know, even in 2011, but it only increased in early 2012. And I would say all the way to the end, I was excited, of course, because when you're in an investigation, you're putting together a puzzle, there's the there's the sheer excitement of trying to understand something and, and the questions that I had for eight years in China about how the system works and I'm starting to understand it. It's becoming clear. It's kind of like taking a course, right? Is every day you're thinking, wow, now I, now this makes sense. I see how they're doing it. So that was the excitement of it. Um, I knew it was a big story, but I also was so exhausted by the work and the stress of trying to put it together that I would say in the last three or four months, I was numb to almost anything. Um, I was numb to like the threats and I was numb to, I was just like 
focused on like I need to make sure this is right and I know there's tremendous pressure and I know there's dangers to me but I just need to sort of push my way through this um, there were periods I have to say in 2012 when I was reluctant to finish I was reluctant you know because of the threat to my to myself or my wife or what would happen I was astonished at what I was finding I thought wow I'm, I'm just cannot believe this is really true um, and that I'll be able to publish it and that I'll get it right uh, and that nothing will happen so so many different pressures that year um, on me so I, I can recall Tokyo being in Tokyo when we when the editors called and said we're going to publish how scared I was about the ramifications of the story like what did it mean for me personally what if I was wrong about something? What is the Chinese government going to do to me or my wife or her family? I didn't really think at all about like, wow, this is this is going to be the greatest story. It's going to win awards. I thought like, I'd better get this right. And this is really scary. And so that was, I was pretty panicked the morning that it ran um, about what the consequences were going to be. And I think the government wanted me to be panicked. They had threatened me before and also... The Wen family and, and their friends had also put a lot of pressure on us. I just, uh, it was a quite a difficult year. But as we know, it was published. Mm -hmm. I think I'm right, really, in saying it caused huge shockwaves, mm -hmm. not only in China, but also on this side of, of the mm -hmm. Pacific and even, you know, throughout Europe. It, mm -hmm. it was a huge revelation. And I think a lot of people, it wasn't surprising necessarily, but I think the degree to which you exposed a lot mm -hmm. of what was going on was quite revelatory. Mm -hmm. Obviously, one of the ramifications has been that the New York Times was then subsequently blocked in China. Right. And I right. believe it's still blocked. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Perhaps you could talk through, just from your own experience, what some of the other ramifications have been mm -hmm. um, in terms of either the New York Times in China or um, how the Chinese government has responded to this story. So obviously, or, or what happened was immediately we were blocked. Our website in, in English was blocked inside of China, and our website in Chinese uh, was blocked inside of China. So those websites went down if you were in China immediately, although the story I like caught on in China before they blocked it, or someone made copies or used the VPN and copied the stories out and posted them around China. So a lot of people got it, but in, inside China it was blocked, and in the... Chinese media was banned from reporting on what we had reported on. Um, I was in Tokyo, as I said, when it came out um, because I had had trouble using my email in China in the final weeks. And so just before we published, I went to Tokyo to finish the editing. And so when it came out, I was in Tokyo and I spent about six weeks there finishing the first article and then uh, a second article that we had that was more about ping on insurance. Um, and so the ramifications, I, you know, I think it was, you know, it, it was shocking to a lot of people outside of China. I think it was less shocking to people inside of China. I think their shock was more that the New York Times would have the audacity to publish this or have the ability to publish this. And lots of people asked me, like, how are you able to publish that? Um, and how, how were you able to find that? But I don't think it surprised that many people inside of China. I remember many friends came up to me and they said, 
that they thought the error of my story was that the numbers were too low, um, that they that the Wynn family had far more than $2.7 billion. And it turns out that they were right because in the year after we published, I ended up finding more than $500 million worth of assets in other places, uh, maybe even a billion. So um, we actually were quite conservative, I think, in what we published. There were lots of things that we took out in the final days um, just to be safe. And also after talking to the family, the family of the prime minister, we um, anything that was too far out there, we, we just pulled out. We didn't need it. So we were, I thought, very conservative in our valuations and in our story about what we knew. We only wanted to publish what we felt really confident uh, we could go with. And even if we had to go to court, did we have documents to back up these valuations or these uh, companies? So I don't know if that answers your full question about ramifications, but in, in China, the ramifications for the journalists were at the New York Times was, we stopped getting visas um, for new journalists trying to enter China for the New York Times. We didn't get new visas. Um, for journalists already in China who had a New York Times visa, we were allowed to renew our visa every year. Um, although in the second year after it was published, the government threatened to withhold all New York Times visas. Bloomberg also had pressure on visas, so the government punished us by withholding new visas and not allowing new reporters to come in. In some cases, reporters that had moved from other publications to us, like Chris Buckley came over from Reuters. He was he was not given a new visa uh, because he was joining the New York Times and the New York Times couldn't get any new visas. So up until the time I left China, back in November, we didn't have a new visa. So about three years with not a single new visa. So finally in 2015, we got new visas and I was able to uh, move back to New York. So it's a little better, but it's, you can imagine that after doing a story like that, the government is going to, to follow journalists a lot more. And so I was followed and tracked and, and even harassed uh, a tremendous amount in the three years after I wrote this article. Um, so I had, you know, a lot of concern. I had death threats. I had, you know, people, you could see the people following you. Um, and people turning up at outside my home with cameras and all sorts of weird things happening. Um, so it was a pretty challenging uh, period after it came out. So to finish off our podcast, mm -hmm. we normally ask everybody, what one thing do you want our audience to know about your topic? Mm -hmm. I would like to ask two ways. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people listening to this will either be students who are interested in getting into journalism themselves. Mm. To them, what advice would you give them about breaking into journalism, particularly people who want to do journalism in China? And then the second part is, journalism is obviously a very tough profession for Chinese journalists in mm. China at the moment. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a few Chinese journalists at Harvard at the moment who talk about some of the issues involved in, in the profession. What would you like to say to Chinese journalists who are currently sort of under a barrage of censorship or mm. facing pressures from various angles? Yeah, that's a difficult one and one a question I get all the time because I have so many people who've worked for me who are in journalism in China. But I kind of think about it, you know, the way I, I talked about this morning um, in the lecture about my own 
effort to get into journalism. And I kind of think, for me, it's not a job. It's not a profession. It's my passion. That's my interest in college is I wanted to try out, you know, the idea that I could call these, uh, you know, historic figures or important people or even non, not very important people and interview them about their lives or a subject and write it for my student newspaper or even my class paper um, and keep the records of these things um, is kind of amazing. So I kind of think if you're interested in journalism, if you love learning and history and investigative reporting or puzzles, you should just do it. Um, and the other things will work themselves out. So in college, maybe I was just lucky, but I didn't think about a resume. I've almost never, I, I, when I applied to the Neiman, for the Neiman Fellowship, I had to create a resume. I don't think I've had a resume in, you know, since I was 19 years old. Um, I don't think you should think about resume or worry too much about how or where you'll get your first break. You should just kind of start to do the thing you want to do and then cross your fingers and hope it turns out that your your passion for it, your interest in it and your focus on it will just make it clear to other people and the doors will start to open. So um, I kind of almost never applied for a job. Um, so, but I, what I did was I started in the classroom, I started in school, I started at the student newspaper, and I studied journalism, I followed my heroes in journalism, read their books, and said, I'm going to try to do something on my own. And I'm either going to do it for my class paper or for the student newspaper or publish it somewhere. And then that's the way to get going and find stories you're really interested in. If you're interested in investigative reporting, start to investigate something locally. Um, I didn't think so big uh, in many of these cases, but I thought I want to do something where it requires a lot of hard work and it requires an attitude of doing something that maybe you thought you couldn't do. Um, so maybe the end target is not something unbelievably important, but at the beginning you say, I want to do something that is not simple um, and that requires a lot of uh, studying, a lot of investigating, a lot of interviewing, a lot of traveling. So I think anyone interested in journalism should kind of just jump in and start doing it and see how much they like it and if they like it as much as I did, then it will become clear. Their path will sort of open up. Um, and I've treated journalism like that all the way through, even up to these stories that I did in China, is find something interesting to yourself, something you're really curious about. And a puzzle, um, could be any puzzle, um, that you can solve in journalism and then go out and try to solve that. Um, so even with the story about the prime minister's wealth, I didn't really think of it as an investigative story at the beginning. I just thought of it as a puzzle I want to solve. And it became much bigger as I went along. Um, and that's the beauty of, of doing journalism, is you just come upon exciting or interesting things. And when it doesn't work out, as many of my investigative stories failed, you just drop it and go to the next one. Um, so that's kind of my advice for young journalists. You know, in China, of course, I mentioned that there are lots of challenges. There's a censorship challenge. There's also a lot of um, blackmailing that goes on with the Chinese media. Um, but there's always an area, and there's certainly an area in China, to do a lot of great work. Um, so I'm not 
I wouldn't necessarily recommend to someone who's a Chinese citizen to go out and investigate their government leaders because that might not end too well. And so I don't want to, but I think there is a large sphere where they can do interesting reporting and lots of things the government is not so sensitive about. You know, who knows if they did an, uh, an investigation into the sports industry or some other area and they could start doing that. So I wouldn't, if I were Chinese and a Chinese journalist, I wouldn't think that because the government has punished uh, some journalists and some Western journalists that nothing can be done. There's lots of great reporting that is not investigative. It's feature stories, it's culture stories, it's science stories. Like imagine how much interesting uh, science reporting you could find in China. So probably like 90% of the things that you can be writing about in China, you're not gonna get in trouble. So find an area that you can do and then maybe when China opens up a little more and maybe some of the restrictions loosen, you can do even more daring things. And as you probably know, Taishin uh, Magazine, they do a lot of exciting investigative journalism that's almost like it's borderline uh, stuff, and it's it's troubling stuff, and, and so they're able to get away with some of it, and uh, they're one of my models. I mean, they, are, they do great stuff. So there is room for good journalism in China. Thank you so much sure. for uh, your welcome. Thank you for listening to the Harvard on China podcast. You can hear more interviews and recordings of events at the Fairbank Center at Harvard University's SoundCloud page, or check out our website. And a special thanks to Sam Wu, Harvard College class of 2017, who composed the music to this podcast, entitled Dolphin Song, especially for the Fairbank Center's 60th anniversary. The piece was recorded with the Harvard NEC Ensemble and with Raylon Yant, Harvard College class of 2016 on the Yang Ching.